I'm Gordon Watt, a retired emergency physician, lawyer, and coroner, the author of Death Text to Coroner's Handbook. More than half a century's work has given me great insights into the dying process that the ways people actually die will pass on to you. Joanne Riley joins me to explain the science of the pathways to death and to help everyone easily understand how people die, we will use simple English. Those who are ill, their family members and caregivers, people questioning a death, or simply anyone interested in the various ways life ends will value this podcast. In our podcast today, Joanne and I will discuss maternal deaths at childbirth, fetal deaths, and child deaths. Much more about these topics can be found in chapters 10 and 20 of Death Text the Coroner's Handbook. It's now available on Amazon.ca. So, Joanne, shall we start today's discussion by talking about deaths in childbirth? I know that childbirth presents dangers to both mother and child. Let's start with you telling me how big a problem a mother's death during childbirth is today. Well, it's a lot better than it used to be. Childbirth was extremely dangerous in the years before modern obstetrical care developed. English parish records in the 18th and 19th centuries showed that between half and 1% of all mothers had died during childbirth. Nowadays, maternal deaths are far fewer, but their number varies quite a bit worldwide. In less developed countries, 2017 saw 462 pregnant women die during childbirth for every 100,000 live births. Girls under the age of 15 were at the highest risk of these deaths. In high-income countries, the number of women who die in childbirth showed national differences. Their 2017 average was only 11 maternal deaths per 100,000 live births. Canada's 2018 figure was 8.3 per 100,000. This ratio resulted from only 31 maternal childbirth deaths in Canada that year. In North America, Europe, and Australasia, maternal childbirth deaths have become quite uncommon. Yet their numbers have increased over the last 30 years. Why is it unclear, but it may have something to do with more women becoming pregnant later in life. There must be different ways that women die in childbirth. I know that excessive hemorrhage is one of them. What are the others? You're right. In fact, bleeding is the most important cause of women dying during childbirth. But there are a few more. Infection, eclampsia, amniotic fluid emboli, Obstructed labor and pulmonary emboli can all cause a mother to die during childbirth. Since it is the most important cause, let's start by talking about what makes women bleed to death during childbirth then. Well, you need to consider what happens to a uterus following the delivery of a baby. A woman's uterus can be thought of as a U-shaped, very elastic muscle that's lined with blood vessels. Throughout her pregnancy, this uterus will be continually stretched by the growing fetus. Once the uterus becomes empty after the baby's been born, its size shrinks as its muscle tightens. The tightening muscle of the uterine wall squeezes its lining blood vessels, and when this squeezing works properly, the blood that continues to flow from the uterus becomes nothing more than a manageable trickle. Unfortunately, after delivery of the baby and the placenta, sometimes the uterus remains very flabby, and it won't shrink. So the bleeding continues, and if the flow can't be stopped, Hemorrhagic shock follows, and the woman dies. Worldwide, uh, postpartum bleeding accounts for between 25 and 50% of all maternal childbirth fatalities. 
Now, a fatal postpartum hemorrhage doesn't only occur when everything's been expelled from the uterus, and yet the uterus remains flabby. Not infrequently, all products of conception don't leave the uterus after a baby's born. After the baby, a placenta is the biggest product of conception, and it can be associated with postpartum bleeding too. While a growing fetus remains within a mother's uterus, it receives nutrients from the placenta. Once the fetus becomes fully developed, it's ready to become a baby. The placenta becomes useless because the baby will have to be fed in some other way in the outside world. So the placenta is a very vascular organ that's only needed for nine months or so until the baby's born. Since the woman will no longer have to furnish nutrients to the baby through her placenta, the shrinking uterus is supposed to separate the placenta completely from the uterine wall, then it's supposed to squeeze the baby umbilical cord and placenta out of the mother's vagina one after another. Maternal bleeding problems arise when the placenta or parts of it remain within the uterus. Any remaining bits of placenta will prevent the uterus from contracting completely, and vaginal bleeding may continue at the time of delivery. Heavy bleeding can also come on quite a bit later after birth for the same reason. In either case, when bleeding doesn't stop, the woman develops hemorrhagic shock and dies of exsanguination. A mother's uterus sometimes ruptures at the time of the child's birth. Uterine rupture is more common in women with a uterus scarred from a prior midline cesarean section. Again, the mother dies of hemorrhagic shock and exsanguination when the uterine tear can't be repaired or an emergency hysterectomy cannot be performed in time. The woman bleeding to death will be frightened, but she won't feel anything else until over 750 milliliters or a pint and a half of blood has been lost. At that point, the woman will start to feel cold, her heart will beat faster, her blood pressure will drop, and she'll begin to feel faint. Once the woman loses consciousness, all these sensations will disappear, of course, and death follows after more than 40% of her blood is lost. The second cause of death you mentioned was eclampsia. What is that? You may have heard that high blood pressure is always a problem for pregnant women. At any point during their pregnancy, when women develop high blood pressure and have protein in their urine, they're said to have preeclampsia. If the blood pressure is not treated and lowered early on, this preeclampsia can turn into eclampsia during the second half of a woman's pregnancy. Eclampsia causes seizures. These seizures can be fatal. Eclampsia accounts for an average of 14% of maternal deaths in developed countries. The U.S. and U.K. experience a slightly lower rate of maternal eclamptic deaths that has varied from 6 to 12% in recent years. In underdeveloped countries, eclampsia is responsible for between 10 and 25% of maternal deaths. Preeclampsia may be symptom-free, or the woman may become anxious and experience a slight headache. Once preeclampsia turns into eclampsia, the woman feels much worse. She develops a severe headache, becomes nauseated, and then vomits. The woman's vision may blur. In fact, she may become temporarily totally blind. Part of the woman's body will swell. At times, a feeling of foreboding develops. This sensation resembles the aura that people experience before convulsing. An eclamptic seizure bends a pregnant woman into an arch position called a pisotinus. This can be seen in Figure 10.3 in Death Text to Corners Handbook that's now available on Amazon.ca. When the seizure ends and the woman awakens, she will have no idea that she's had a seizure at all. But women don't always awaken. 
Seizures like this are the reason why eclampsia is sometimes fatal. The seizure abates, but breathing stops and death follows three to five minutes later. Why seizures are sometimes fatal is still a mystery. Hypertension has another way of killing pregnant women, too. Three to five percent of pregnant women have little aneurysms in their cerebral arteries. These aneurysms are thin wall bulges that usually occur at the point where two arteries meet. When a pregnant woman's blood pressure rises, the increased pressure on some aneurysms cause them to burst. Big ruptures lead to a large outpouring of blood that causes a fatal subarachnoid hemorrhage. Subarachnoid hemorrhage is announced in cells with a very severe headache, typically described as a thunderclap. Only about half of subarachnoid hemorrhages are fatal, and many survivors have described very explicitly all the sensations they felt. That sudden, extremely painful headache first makes them aware of the subarachnoid bleed. Vomiting often follows. Lights bother their eyes a lot. Neck muscles stiffen. Sometimes one side of their bodies will weaken and go limp. They feel confused, and they sometimes convulse. In lethal bleeds, these symptoms don't last long before loss of consciousness. The period of coma follows at last until coning causes death. Coning means that increased intracranial pressure caused by the bleeding is starting to push the lower part of the brain, called the brainstem, through the large hole at the base of the skull, called the foramen magnum. The arteries alongside the brainstem that supply oxygenated blood to the brain then get squashed between the edges of the foramen magnum and the brainstem. No more fresh oxygen can flow to the brain. In addition, direct pressure on the brainstem ends messages telling the lungs to breathe and the heart to beat. Death inevitably follows, though it may take hours to occur. Of course, people don't know they have one of these aneurysms until it bursts. A ruptured aneurysm can kill a woman at any time during her pregnancy, not just during childbirth. What are amniotic fluid emboli, and how do they cause a pregnant woman to die? Amniotic fluid is the liquid contained in a sac surrounding the fetus within a pregnant woman's uterus. Amniotic fluid, fetal cells, hair, and other fetal debris sometimes enter a mother's bloodstream during childbirth. Their access into the maternal blood is through cervical lacerations, the placenta, or a ruptured uterus. These bits of tissue or fluid are carried around a mother's body in her blood, and they're called emboli. Women who've had many children, or a prior cesarean section, develop these emboli most often, but nobody knows why. About half of amniotic fluid emboli deaths occur within an hour of them entering the bloodstream. The woman finds it harder and harder to breathe, that finding will only last for a few seconds, though, because she'll speedily lose consciousness. These early deaths are due to a form of suffocation. Quite often, amniotic fluid emboli deaths occur after childbirth when a flabby uterus and blood that will not clot lead to continual bleeding. The symptoms felt before death vary with the length of time the woman remains conscious after dying starts to take hold. At its beginning, a woman will always feel anxious when she realizes she can no longer breathe very easily. The woman will flush. Her breathing speeds up. She may start to cough, and it's only at this point that the woman finds it very difficult to get air into her lungs. She'll get more restless, agitated, and confused before finally lapsing into unconsciousness. The woman's death that follows arises from shock, likely due to an anaphylactic reaction to her amniotic fluid. Amniotic fluid emboli occur in 1 per 20,000 light births. Only 13 to 26% of women affected 
die of these emboli nowadays, though. Nevertheless, amniotic fluid emboli still account for about 10% of maternal deaths worldwide. Could you tell me about obstructed labor? Obstructed labor means something blocks the fetus from leaving its mother's body. All medical students learn about what's called the transverse lie in a uterus, where a fetus lies horizontally across the abdomen rather in the vertical position that's needed for delivery. A transverse lie is usually treated by manual manipulation from horizontal to vertical. In developed countries, when that doesn't work, a cesarean section eventually follows. If the fetus remains in a horizontal position when contractions begin, though, labor will be obstructed. The second type of obstructed labor occurs when mothers have pelvises that are too small for the head, which is the biggest part of the baby, to pass through. In developed countries, this problem is normally discovered before labor, and delivery then takes place by cesarean section. Without such surgery, though, labor would remain obstructed and the baby couldn't be born. Nowadays, death from obstructed labor is very unusual in developed countries. Obstructed labor remains a problem in less developed countries, though. About 19,000 women died from obstructed labor in 2013, the last year for which I could locate this data. In its most recent report, the World Health Organization said that obstructed labor accounted for between 1 and 5 deaths per thousand live births in some less developed countries. Obstructed labor is very painful. A woman will experience all the pains felt in any labor, but when the labor is obstructed, they're worse and last longer. Eventually, her fruitless obstructed labor exhausts the woman and then she'll begin dying. The woman may develop septicemia that turns into sepsis, septic shock, and finally death. She may simply start to bleed from her vagina and die of hemorrhagic shock and exsanguination. Alternatively, the woman's uterus may rupture, and then she'll bleed to death, but from a different cause. The last reason you mentioned for women to die in childbirth was pulmonary emboli. Let's discuss them now. Well, pulmonary emboli are responsible for 3 to 10% of maternal deaths. Emboli are formed from bits of blood clots that develop in a pregnant woman's legs and break loose in her bloodstream. These emboli flow through the woman's venous blood, to end up somewhere in her lungs. Blood will clot in pregnant women more easily than in non-pregnant women. Why this happens is unclear, but one sensible sounding theory is that it's nature's way of protecting women against unnecessary blood loss after childbirth. Clot formation is more common in obese women, hypertensive women, and women who've had cesarean sections previously. A clot's also more likely to form in the pregnant woman's deep veins when she happens to have cancer or has been bedridden for much of her pregnancy. Some women are even unlucky enough to have a gene that encourages their blood to form clots. These pregnant women are known to develop a deep vein thrombus in one of their legs just from sitting still on an airplane trip. How do pulmonary emboli kill these women? Clots that develop in veins do not cause death because they form. They only become lethal once large pieces of the clot break loose, become an embolus, and travel from its site of origin to come to a full stop somewhere. The embolus passes through different veins until it enters the heart's right atrium. From the atrium, the embolus passes through a valve into the right ventricle. The embolus leaves the right ventricle through another valve to try to enter the lungs. A very large embolus will lodge 
across the entryway to the pulmonary arteries. That will stop all blood from flowing into the lungs. Such an embolus is called a saddle embolus. Once one blocks the pulmonary arteries, loss of consciousness occurs instantly. Death follows a few minutes later. Lesser emboli simply lodge in smaller pulmonary arteries. Their setting causes sharp pains to develop in a woman's chest. Her heart will begin to speed up, the woman may start coughing, and her breathing will gradually become more difficult. These symptoms may continue for hours before these emboli cause loss of consciousness and then death. This death from multiple pulmonary emboli follows a slower pathway than the sudden death from a saddle embolus. Not all pregnancies end in childbirth. Nowadays, many pregnancies are aborted. Do women die from abortions very often? Remember, abortions come in two types. The more common one is a natural miscarriage. Miscarriage is most often mother's nature's way of ending a pregnancy that's not likely to end in a healthy baby. Less commonly, a natural abortion takes place when the woman's cervix is not tight enough to hold the fertilized egg or fetus within the uterus. It drops out of the uterus and the pregnancy becomes aborted. Less frequently, an expectant mother chooses to end her pregnancy. She now has options. Her simplest one is to take pills containing mifepristone and mifsoprostol. This pill option is only supposed to be used during the first 13 weeks of pregnancy, but in France, where the abortion pill was invented, physicians ignore this recommendation and prescribe it to women much later in their pregnancies. So this practice is likely being followed elsewhere too. At 13 weeks, a fetus is very small, about the size of a lemon. The abortion pill makes a pregnant woman pass the fetus with accompanying uterine cramps and slight bleeding. At this stage of development, both the fetus and its placenta usually pass out of the uterus, completely leaving nothing behind. The woman's pelvic cramping ends after this happens. All vaginal bleeding should stop not long afterwards. This pill is very safe, but it has possible complications like most other medical procedures do. Death from using the abortion pill, though unlikely, might occur if a woman develops heavy bleeding or sepsis and doesn't seek immediate medical attention for these problems. Abortions still account for 13% of maternal deaths globally and 50% in sub-Saharan Africa. Death from abortions occur in the same way as with any pregnancy. One major cause of post-abortion death is when uterine bleeding is so heavy that the woman experiences hemorrhagic shock and she exsanguinates. Abortions also cause death when an infection that develops in the woman's uterus spreads into her bloodstream. This is quite often the case with backstreet abortions that are often carried out with straightened wire coat hangers. These coat hangers are covered with germs that easily pass into the bloodstream during an abortion. In very poor parts of Africa where coat hangers can't be easily found, twigs and chicken bones have been used to induce abortions. Twigs and chicken bones are often covered with germs that just as easily cause septicemia, sepsis, septic shock, and ultimately death. It's quite possible to perforate a uterus with a twig or a chicken bone, though it's harder to do than when using a coat hanger. A uterus ruptured either way may cause the unfortunate woman to die from shock. So we've discussed maternal deaths. What about how a fetus can die? Well, to start with, fetal death can happen at any time during a pregnancy. When a dead fetus is delivered, it's said to be stillborn. The process of its delivery is called a stillbirth, and stillbirths can happen from either a pregnancy or a fetal problem. Pregnancy problems account for about 30% of stillbirths. 
These include a placenta tearing away from its uterine wall, an inadequate blood supply from the placenta to twins or triplets, or premature labor of a non-viable fetus. Some fetal problems can be identified, but often there is no apparent reason to explain why a fetus dies. Congenital anomalies account for some 10% of these deaths, and 10% of the time an umbilical cord that's wrapped around the fetus neck has cut off its blood supply. Another 10% of the time, death comes from placental or fetal infection. Autopsies and genetic testing are not routinely done on stillbirths. Consequently, usually only a cause that's visible can be used to explain a stillbirth. Let's switch from the fetus to children. I know that children don't die often, but there must be quite a few who die not long after birth. You're right. The earliest period for which statistics usually record deaths is the first year of life. And in 2016, the World Health Organization estimated that 4.2 million children died before becoming one-year-old. Most of these deaths occurred in less developed countries. As a comparison, Africa had 52 deaths in the first year of life per 1,000 light births, while Europe had only eight. In 2016, the United States recorded 22,241 children died before they became one-year-old. The top 10 causes of death represented about two-thirds of those first-year deaths. Congenital anomalies and excessive premature births made up the biggest number. By themselves, in 2016, in the USA, they accounted for one-third of all first-year deaths. Another 10% died from internal pregnancy complications, placental, umbilical cord, and membrane problems. Unintentional injuries only accounted for 5%, and that's not surprising, of course. For much of the first year of life, a child's not very mobile. It's often placed in some sort of a cradle for much of the day. Most of the time, this will protect any possible injury from occurring. Three more of the other causes in the U.S.'s top 10 first-year deaths were septicemia, neonatal hemorrhage, and respiratory distress, which together accounted for another 5%. They are also often complications of childbirth. I've heard about the sudden infant death syndrome, or SIDS. Does SIDS occur in the first year of life? What exactly is it, and how often does it occur? SIDS must occur in the first year of a child's life to be classified as a SIDS. In fact, 95% of SIDS deaths occur before the infant's six months old. The frequency with which SIDS occurs peaks in the second to fourth month of life. The world records about 20,000 SIDS deaths annually. In developed countries, the SIDS frequency range between 1 per 1,000 and 1 per 10,000 live births. The U.S. reports about one death per 2,000 live births overall, but its number is quite a bit higher among African and indigenous Americans. Now, for a death to be considered due to SIDS, two things need to happen. First, an exhaustive examination of the death scene must reveal no obvious cause of death. Secondly, an autopsy must reveal no explanation for the death either. Males make up about 60% of SIDS deaths. Since most children who die before they're one-year-old aren't autopsied in most countries, the annual number of cases of SIDS worldwide is probably a much higher number than 20,000 per year. Nobody knows why SIDS occurs, but three factors are thought to play a role. First, the child must have some sort of brainstem abnormality. Second, an event to trigger SIDS needs to happen at a critical point in the child's development. Third, the infant's body will have to be exposed to some sort of stress. 
parent who checks on an infant at some time between midnight and 9 a.m. is usually the person who discovers the SIDS death. A dead SIDS infant shows no sign of a struggle. It's simply bluish and perhaps stiff, depending on how long the infant's been dead. If it weren't for these features and its lack of breathing, the infant would appear to be peacefully asleep. Now, a brainstem abnormality cannot always be detected by an autopsy, and the time of a critical point in the infant's development varies. It's usually found between the second and fourth months of life. The stress on an infant can come in different forms. An infant lying on its side or stomach to sleep is thought to be one of these stresses. The infant's bedroom, clothing, or sleeping arrangements may be too hot, and that's another. A third occurs when the bedroom air is rather foul rather than fresh. In some homes, cigarette smoke pervades the whole house all day long. In years gone by before SIDS was understood to exist, mothers often had their infants sleeping beside them in the same bed. When parents awakened in the morning to discover the infant lying beside his breastfeeding mother had died from SIDS, the woman was usually accused of having rolled over and smothered the child. This erroneous belief undoubtedly caused millions of women unimaginable guilt before people learned about SIDS. That's not to say that infants don't get smothered. Mothers who experience postpartum depression can easily suffocate their children. An infant won't struggle much when a pillow or a plastic sheet is placed over its nose and mouth. In fact, this happens often enough that in Canada and the UK, but not in the USA, this maternal killing of an infant constitutes a special crime called infanticide. Infanticide has much less severe penalties than other sorts of intentional killings because the mother is considered mentally unstable when she smothers or otherwise kills her baby. Infanticide must be mentioned when talking about SIDS because it's estimated that probably 5 to 10% of SIDS cases are in fact undetected infanticides. What about the deaths of children who are past their infancy but still preschool? What do they usually die from? Since we've been using the 2016 American statistics, let's look at their top four causes of child death in the one to four years age range. By far the biggest is accidents. These children are old enough to move around but not yet aware enough to look after themselves properly. They fall off tables, poison themselves, and run out in front of moving cars. Many simply die as passengers in motor vehicle accidents. Their major cause of accidental death, though, is drowning. Children with congenital anomalies who have managed to survive for more than 12 months before dying from them make up the second most frequent cause. The third most common reason for one to four-year-old's death may surprise you. It's cancer. Lots of children do start to develop malignant tumors, even in these early years. And fourth most often, these children aged one to four are killed. Children this age don't have the ability to easily avoid a threatening person who's often an angry parent. But without homicidal intent, their abusive treatment of a young child may be so harsh that a child dies. This death is a homicide, though an unintentional one. Young children in this age have very large heads. When they're picked up and forcibly shaken back and forth, blood vessels within their skulls burst. The increased intracranial pressure from this bleeding will cause death by coning. Such a death is said to result from shaken baby syndrome. It must be diagnosed by an autopsy that shows an intracranial hemorrhage. The pathologist may also note bloodshot eyes like what one sees in severe conjunctivitis. 
That's often not all the pathologists discovers when these cases are autopsied, though. Abused children often show proof of having been injured many times before the lethal shaking. X-rays or tissue dissection often show multiple healing or healed fractured bones. This evidence of repeated physical abuse fits the child into what's called the battered child syndrome. The battered child syndrome is not a cause of death necessarily, but it's incontrovertible proof of repeated child abuse. There's also a group of deaths in the one to four age group called the Sudden Unexplained Death Syndrome, or SUDS. There are far fewer deaths from SUDS than SIDS. In 2015, the USA reported only 395 SUDS deaths. SUDS has three requirements. The first is that no medical history exists that makes a sudden death likely. Secondly, nothing at the site of death can be a possible cause. And finally, an autopsy must not discover any finding likely to have caused sudden death. What about older children? How often do they usually die? Well, U.S. statistics divide child deaths into the 4 to 9 and the 9 to 14 years age groups. Both have the same top four causes of death as the younger group, except that the category congenital anomalies drops to fifth place in the 9 to 14 group and suicide replaces it. 9 to 14 year olds are old enough to figure out how to kill themselves. To learn how they might do this, consult Chapter 20 in Death Hex the Corner's Handbook, now available on Amazon.ca. Chapter 10 will also tell you that there are far fewer childhood deaths between the ages 4 to 14 than there were in the 1 to 4 age group. These older children are much more capable than younger children of running away from dangerous adults, as well as generally looking after themselves. What about teenagers? How do they die? The World Health Organization differentiates between males and females from 15 on because the females can get pregnant by this time. The World Health Organization lists the top five causes of death for 15 to 19-year-old females as maternal conditions, suicide, road injuries, diarrheal diseases, and tuberculosis. The top five male causes of death in this age group are traffic accidents, homicide, suicide, drowning, and AIDS. Now in the USA, the top three causes of death for 15 to 19-year-olds in both sexes are identical, accidents, suicide, and homicide. Maternal conditions, tuberculosis, and diarrheal diseases cause less death of teenage American girls because the United States has much better health care than the less developed parts of the world. TB and diarrhea are no longer commonly fatal in the USA nowadays either. Similarly, AIDS is less fatal in teenage American boys than those in less developed countries because American boys have better health care too. Fewer teenage boys drown than those in less developed countries. America is colder than most less developed countries. In much of the USA, swimming is only possible for a few months a year rather than year-long when closer to the equator. That concludes our discussion of maternal, fetal, and child deaths. Much more about this topic can be found in chapters 10 and 20 of Death Text the Coroner's Handbook, available on Amazon.ca. On our next podcast, Joanne and I will talk about cardiac deaths. Thanks for joining us for this episode of The Ways People Actually Die. If you want more information about what you've just listened to before our next episode, you can always go to deathtextbook.com and discover how to purchase a copy of Death Text, the Coroner's Handbook, through Amazon. 
That book is the source of all our podcasts and contains much more fascinating material about each topic that we will be discussing. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, both Joanne Riley and I, Gordon Watt, ask you to leave a review on Apple Podcasting and Spotify and share this episode with your friends. Okay, well, that's it for now then, I guess. 